Oramai, good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. In the whole world, there are currently just over 200 of them. Many of them have very demanding jobs and would seldom, if ever, visit the Isle of Man. So who are they? They're cardinals, the most senior members of the Roman Catholic Church. In the entire UK, there are only two, and one of them is here on the island this weekend. You can even meet him in person in Ramsey later this morning if you wish. He's Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald, and he's my special guest on today's programme. Later on, we'll take a look at this week's notice board and Ruth Rice pops back in to share a thought about something we'd probably prefer not to think about at all. But first, let's have some music. And our hymns today are sung by the combined choirs of children and adults drawn from schools and churches in the Diocese of Leeds and recorded in Leeds Cathedral. We start with Bernadette Farrell's popular composition, Christ Be Our Light.
Christ Be Our Light, choirs drawn from around the Diocese of Leeds singing together in Leeds Cathedral. Cardinals are the most senior officials in the Roman Catholic Church. They're chosen by the Pope and have usually already been a bishop or an archbishop for some years. Their duties include electing the Pope, acting as his principal advisers, and generally aiding in the government of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the world. At the moment, there are just over 200 cardinals from approximately 70 countries, but only two are from the United Kingdom. Cardinal Vincent Nichols, who leads the Catholic Church in England and Wales, and my guest this morning, Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald. Now in retirement, Cardinal Michael serves as an assistant priest in the parish of St Vincent de Paul in the city centre of Liverpool. Cardinal Michael has dedicated his life to Arabic and Islamic studies and to strengthening relations between Christians and Muslims. But let's go back to his early days to discover what first drew him to become a missionary priest. And interestingly, it wasn't the influence or example of his uncle who was a priest, but a teacher who gave him religious instruction when he was a young boy. That is true. I was at a non-Catholic school and so had a teacher from the local Catholic primary school who came and gave me catechism lessons on Monday evening. And she it was who introduced me to books about the missions, the Wopsy books, which are about the guardian angel of a missionary and very, very well written. I wanted to be a priest already, but it sparked a missionary thought. These were stories about lions and witch doctors and cars breaking down and all sorts of things, but uh, I don't know what really attracted me. But I know that I didn't want to be a priest in England. I bought a little booklet on the missions, and it was all about saying mass in pubs in East Anglia or something like that. That's not what I want. I didn't want that at all. So you did, in fact, complete your secondary education in a Catholic school? Yes, I went away to join the junior seminary of the White Fathers of the Missionaries of Africa. It wasn't a very good education, educationally speaking, but it was good training, missionary training. It was quite tough, but enjoyable. What I found useful was the mix of boys... We had lots of boys from Scotland, and at the beginning I, I found difficulty in relating to these boys from Scotland. But, you know, we're an international missionary society, so we have to be ready to live with people of all sorts. Just taking an, an overview of, of a long and distinguished career, there have been times when you have asked to do something and the answer's been no, or when you have been asked to do something and the answer was always yes. Do you think this obedience is a real way of getting you where God wants you to be as opposed to where we like to choose that we would be ourselves? Yes, I do think that. I think obedience is, is a way to peace and that you know that you're doing the will of God. But this doesn't exclude presenting objections to what is asked of you. If you feel that you're not capable of doing that, you should say so. And even after having taken up 
the appointment you're given. If it doesn't work out, you have to say, look, it's not working out. I don't think I should be here. Dialogue is fine as long as the superiors have the last word and not you. Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald was for many years the Catholic Church's leading expert on interfaith dialogue. Looking back to 1961, it could be said that Father Michael Fitzgerald, newly ordained in that year, on the eve of the start of the Second Vatican Council, was the right person in the right place at the right time. Pope John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council because he felt the Church needed updating. And as a result, 16 documents produced by the Council proposed significant changes, including a call for a new approach to relations between the Church and the world, to religious freedoms and to non-Christian religions. One particular declaration from the Council, called In Our Time, dealt with relations with other religions, especially Judaism but also Islam, and for the first time was positive about other religious traditions, emphasising the need for dialogue between people rather than systems. Surely this was a fresh and bold approach to interfaith relations. Yes, it, it was very new. It was the first time that the Catholic Church had expressed itself on relations with people of other religions, at least officially at this level of a council. And it is very important, I think, to see that relations are between people. We have to deal with people as they are. Uh, Muslims call us uh, mushrikeen, that's idolaters, because we have a trinity. Well, we are not idolaters. We're, we're monotheists, but we understand God in a different way. That is difficult to put over and to be accepted by them. You know, our religions are mysterious, and we have to accept that. Even Muslims who say that their religion is the most rational of all, they can't explain why we exist you know, why did we exist? God is, is self-sufficient. He didn't need us, but he created us. Why? That's a mystery. And they can't explain that. But you have said over the years that entering into this kind of dialogue with Muslims and, and people of different beliefs has in fact strengthened your own Christian belief. Yes, that is true. I remember once in India I was giving a talk on two Muslims on Islamic spirituality and what it meant for a Christian. And at the end they asked me, but you've spoken so beautifully about Islamic spirituality, why aren't you a Muslim? So I, I said to myself, well, you, you asked for it and now you get it. I spoke about the love of Jesus and... Jesus, what Jesus means to us as Christians, so we can't give that up. Cardinal Michael has always been quite clear that the whole basis for dialogue is the Christian belief in God as love and God's love for humankind. So the windows had been opened during the Second Vatican Council, allowing the wind of change to sweep through the Church, bringing with it a new approach to interfaith relations. But it was another Pope Pope John Paul II, who moved interfaith relations further forward when he organised the first World Day of Prayer for Peace in Assisi in Italy in October 1986. 
In all, there were 160 religious leaders who spent the day together, fasting and praying to their god or gods. They represented 32 Christian denominations and 11 non-Christian world religions. The following year, 1987, the then Father Michael Fitzgerald was appointed first as secretary, then as president of the Vatican's Council for Interreligious Dialogue, effectively the Pope's top person on interfaith relations. During these years, Father Michael was consecrated bishop and, ten years later, became Archbishop. But just how important was that first World Day of Prayer for Peace in Assisi, coming, as it did, less than a year before Cardinal Michael took up his Vatican appointment? The Assisi meeting gave a great impact on uh, interreligious relations, both from the Christian side and from the people of other religions. From the Christian side, they saw the Pope walking in the street together with uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and the Dalai Lama. So we can do that then as, as Catholics. And then the other people saw how they had been welcomed. And so there was a great enthusiasm for interreligious dialogue at that moment. And I benefited by that. Pope Paul VI, when he created our office, he said it should be a place where all people are welcomed, and we took that to heart. We were welcoming all sorts of people. Anybody could come. That doesn't mean to say that we would dialogue with them, but we would receive them and listen to them. Fifteen years I was the secretary, and then three and a half years as president. And then I was appointed to Egypt as nuncio, papal representative in Egypt. The great advantage of those years is that I got to know the Oriental churches. We often think of the church as only us, the Latin Christians, but it's not like that. And there were seven churches in Egypt, seven communities, each with their own bishop. And uh, so that was something that I learnt. I was pleased that I hadn't done this sort of work all my life as papal representative. I was happy with the work in the Council for Interreligious Dialogue, the meetings and the reflection, and it's a, a very different life as a representative. It's a different character. You are a middleman. You're representing the Christians of that country to the Holy See and you're representing the Holy See to the responsible people of the communities and also the government. You don't have any authority. It's not that we had authority before, but yes, the reflection and the meeting of different people in the dialogue could bear more fruit. Now, after your time there, you could possibly have been considering coming back to the UK, but you didn't. You went then to your order in Jerusalem. Yes, it would be natural to retire to your own country where your own family is, but my family is not in this country. We're all scattered. My closest relatives are in Australia and Canada. I was happy to go to Jerusalem, which is one of our original communities set up by the founder in 1878. 
and which is a community of dialogue, also dialogue with other Christians, particularly the Oriental churches, and also with the Muslims in that area. So I chose to go there. But again, a, a place with its own conflicts and tensions with the Israeli-Palestinian situation there. Yes, I said I chose to go there. I didn't know how long I would last. But you learn to live with the tensions, in a sense. What I discovered there is that really to do any work in dialogue with Muslims you need to be very fluent in Palestinian Arabic, and that I wasn't. So I thought maybe I could learn Scouse and, and help in relations in Liverpool. Isn't that an international language, Scouse? <laughs> <laughs> so you came back and you are now living in inner city Liverpool. Yeah. And it was in the autumn, the late autumn of 2019, that something really quite special happened to you. And I think it's a delightful story and I'd love you to tell it again. So let's just set the scene. It's late autumn, October 2019. And you were in a church that's very familiar to people of the Isle of Man because if you're standing on the ferry and looking towards the pier head, just to the left of the Liver building is the parish church of St Nicholas. And you were there taking part in an ecumenical service for Sea Sunday. That's right. Cardinal, take up the story for us, please. So, after the service in the church, there was also a service at the Pier Head, a memorial for those sailors, mariners, who had lost their life during the war. And then we went into the Liverpool Museum for refreshments. But we were all dressed up, you know, I was as an archbishop. And so after a cup of coffee, I decided to go back to the church and change. And I could get into the church, but I couldn't get back into the sacristy where I had left my ordinary clothes. So I walked back through the city in my cassock and everything. Nobody blinked an eyelid that. So I let myself into the house and my two confreres who were there, they embraced me. I was very surprised because we don't do that normally. And they said, didn't you hear the news? What news? Well, you've been appointed a cardinal. Oh, (laughs) I didn't know at all. So that's how I found out. And Pope Francis sent a letter that said, the cardinalship does not imply promotion. It is neither an honour nor a decoration. It is simply a service that requires you to broaden your gaze and open your hearts. Therefore, I ask you please to receive this designation with a simple and humble heart. And whilst you must do so with pleasure and joy, ensure that this sentiment is far from any expression of worldliness or from any form of celebration contrary to the evangelical spirit of austerity, sobriety and poverty. How did you feel when you read that? I would agree with him. And certainly he didn't want crowds of people coming and, you know, spending uh, a lot of money on celebrations and things like that. I had 20 or more people who came, mostly relatives, and uh, they enjoyed the ceremony and everything. But it's true, it is a service to the Universal Church and we try to fulfil that service. I would say my identity, I'm first and foremost a missionary of Africa. 
that I became a bishop, an archbishop, and then a cardinal, that doesn't matter. But what I am is a missionary, and we try to live that wherever we are. Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald, if you were talking to a 19-year-old today, what little bit of advice would you give them? Well, I would say be yourself. Don't let yourself be captured by your peers. Be yourself. And what you feel you should do, what contribution you can make to the world, then do that. Thank you to my special guest today, Roman Catholic Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald. And if you'd like to meet the Cardinal, he'll be celebrating Mass in the Catholic Church in Ramsey, that's the one by the lifeboat station on the promenade, this morning at 11 o'clock, where everyone will be made most welcome. And now it's time for our Word of the Week from Ruth Rice, founder of Renew Wellbeing, cafe-style safe spaces where everyone is welcomed, supported and gently encouraged to find their own pathway to mental health. Ruth has created a very personal A to Z of things that are good for her own mental and emotional well-being. And as is the case this week, sometimes it's lessons that she's learned the hard way. This week, it's the letter I. So, over to you, Ruth. I, in the A to Z of Ruth, is a weird one. I've put this as illness accepted. There's a time in my life when I lost my voice over and over again and I didn't accept it. I wouldn't accept it. I didn't want to take a day off work. I prided myself on never having had a day off work. I was a teacher at the time. So I used to shake a little tambourine, all these five-year-olds would come running. And Actually, we had some lovely moments together where when I couldn't speak, my voice had gone. The children would become quieter and calmer and we'd have these little voice rest times together. But I did need to accept that I wasn't well. And then that illness turned into another illness. And then it kind of contributed towards an overall burnout breakdown. I think if I'd taken that first moment of feeling really ill 
and actually given myself some rest, I've not pushed myself and driven myself, then maybe I wouldn't have crashed and burned. That's not always the case, is it? But actually, there's something for my well-being and for my mental and emotional health about accepting that illness can be part of the wholeness of our lives. It's a, a strange thing to say that there is room within the cup of our life for sometimes being not well and having to give ourselves time to recover. I know that for many of you, illness has gone on and on, and I'm sorry, and I'm praying that that won't always be the case for you, but accepting sometimes that we need to look after ourselves, give ourselves time to recover. So illness accepted. Thank you, Ruth Rice. And there'll be more from Ruth's alphabet of well-being next week. Let's finish with a look at our notice board and we start with events today. This afternoon, before this year's Southern 100 gets underway, there's to be a memorial ride-out from the club headquarters on the Castletown Bypass to Maloo Parish Church, where there'll be a short service at three o'clock. Music will be provided by the Castletown Metropolitan Silver Band and during the service, a new memorial to all involved with the Southern 100 races will be dedicated by the Southern 100 Club Chaplain, Reverend Canon John Coldwell, who will also lead the service and will be followed by light refreshments. If you'd like to join the ride out, please assemble in the holding area at two o'clock. The lap will be leaving at half past two and the short church service is at three o'clock. On now to this evening and the cool Sunday school anniversary service will be held tonight at half past six. The service will be led by Mr Gareth Moore and there will be special items by the young people and Mrs Christine Brigazzi. Refreshments will follow the service and there's a warm welcome for everyone. Looking now to the week ahead and St Thomas's Church here in Douglas just off the promenade by the Gaiety Theatre have a concert every Wednesday evening through the summer with free admission and refreshments afterwards. The concert always starts at a quarter to eight and this week the Government Choir under the direction of Dr Mandy Griffin will provide the entertainment. Also on Wednesday evening, the 13th, there's another Summer Songs of Praise in St Adamnan's, Lonnon Old Church, starting at half past seven. Thursday night summer concerts in Port Erin are in full swing now, with Meadowside Choral Society providing the entertainment in St Catherine's Church in Port Erin this Thursday night at a quarter to eight. Admission is free. There'll be a retiring collection if you wish to donate and you're welcome to stay for refreshments in the hall after the concert. Thursday the 14th is also Tabor on Thursday night. Come to Port St Mary Methodist Church for a Trinidadian-themed night with a meal. It's this Thursday at half past seven and the cost is £15 per person. Ring 834 696 to reserve your tickets. Looking now to next weekend, and there's going to be an open gardens weekend to raise funds for Old Kirk Braddon. Entrance to the gardens is by programme, and if you get your programme now, you'll have plenty of time to plan your tour of the gardens, which will be open between 2pm and 5pm on the afternoons of Saturday and Sunday, the 16th and 17th of July. Programmes are just £5 each. They admit you to all the participating gardens and they're available now from Kirby Garden Centre or Kirkbraddon Parish Office. 
And last but by no means least, next Sunday afternoon, the 17th, you're invited to share in Oristdale Chapel's anniversary celebration. It's at half past two next Sunday afternoon in Oristdale Chapel with Chairman Gordon Clegg, the Mariners Choir with Eric Kelly at the keyboard and poetry from Irene Cowan. Annie Bairstow will speak about an Oristdale childhood and if you could possibly bring along some food for a bring and share afternoon tea after the service, that would be much appreciated. And that's all that we have time for now. But I'll be back in the studio tonight from nine with sundown. Easy listening music to round off the weekend and I'd love you to join me if you can. Do please email me if you've got items for the notice board. My address is judithlay at manxradio.com. So till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. The nation stays.